Okay, so it is great to be with y'all today, really, truly, on this Tuesday. Um, as I've been telling you, we'll be here on Tuesdays for a while. I don't know of a Tuesday. We weren't going to do something this summer, but nothing's on the books yet. So um, I will tell you one thing. Yesterday in my Monday online class, we finished up Hosea. And next Monday, we're going to start the Gospel of Mark. So if you would like to, to sort of go through the Gospel of Mark, there are three ways that you can do that. One, you could join us live at 3 o'clock. Um, it's in living color. It is, and it, it looks good. So, um, so at 3 o'clock on Mondays, and it's online, the same place this class is streamed to, the same place my Sunday class is streamed to, all, those links are all on the Friday email that you get every, at the end of every week, Thursday, Friday, man, depending on what's going on. So that's one way is to join us live. Another way is to listen to the podcast because I just take the audio as I do for this class and I put it up on the web and you can find me in Apple Podcasts, for example, under Scott Engel Bible Studies. I thought that was original. <laughs> and I'm a very practical, practical person sometimes. Um, and it's up on, on Android and other people's uh, podcast stuff. And the third way is on YouTube, because I went, you know, I post one, all three classes, the videos for those classes I post on YouTube, and that link as well is in the Friday update. So there are lots of ways to participate. The Gospel of Mark was the first gospel to be written, very action-oriented. Um, I'm with those who think that it is Peter's eyewitness testimony, that Peter told this story many, many, many times, and it was written down by John Mark, a companion, a person you meet in the book of Acts, and became known as the Gospel of Mark, probably emerged, written in the mid-60s AD. So it's not the, the oldest writings in your New Testament are Paul's letters. So it's not as old as Paul's letters, but it's the first of the Gospels to emerge. Um, and be passed around from place to place and ending up with ending up with us so we're going to start that on monday so otherwise um you see on your tables the stations of the cross map instructions this is something uh, lauren girdlock has pulled together for this year this is the first time where it's being done um and i think it'll be really special it's going to it's really built to go from dawn to dusk Arthur keeps saying 24-7, but I don't know that you really want to do it at night because it's all outside, so like in the dark. So, so dawn to dusk, and um, it begins uh, at the doors into the sanctuary and will then lead you through all the way over to the pond, I believe, and um, with audio, kind of like you go to a museum and you get that little thing that you hang around your neck that takes you from painting to painting. I, I think that's what it is. It's all Lauren. She wrote it. She recorded it. She wrote it. The whole thing. So it's she conceived it. So um, anyway, it's going to be going to be excellent. I'm I'm hoping that many people in the church will be able to participate. But that's coming up next week because next week is Holy Week. This Sunday is Palm Sunday. And then we have Monday, Thursday on Thursday, Monday, Thursday, slow down, Scott. 
The Monday Thursday service is going to be on Monday Thursday. As I've said, I'm often asked what Monday means. It means it comes from the Latin word for command, mandatum, commandment. That is that's that, that's the derivation of it, and it's about Jesus' instruction in the washing of the feet to to serve as as he came to serve. So. Um, then the Good Friday service, you don't want to miss that on Good Friday, and it will all prepare you then for Easter, and you now know that the 9.30 traditional service on Easter morning is going to be at 9 o'clock. Right, right, 9 o'clock, traditional service Easter morning. But the identical service is going to be done at 5.30 on Saturday. And I'll tell you, um, if I weren't doing the liturgist B, <laughs> We have two liturgists on some mornings, A and B. If I were liturgist B on Easter morning, Patty and I would go Saturday night. Um, just, it'll be, it's going to be very busy up here Easter morning. So make your choice, um, and it just, it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Saturday, Sunday, wonderful weekend. Okay, so anything, anybody want to add to all that, or any questions or things that you would like to talk about? Before we get started, Ralph will send the red box around in a bit, like he always does. Thank you, Ralph, for doing that every week, Mr. Faithful, around the red box and counting heads for me. You know, everything I do, whether it's Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday, it all happens, really. I mean, I get up here and I do this, but there's all this stuff that happens because of volunteers. You know, that's it. And, and, and that's, that's really how it should be. We're all working on this together. So, anything? Okay, we want to remember in our prayers today, Linda Banner's sister-in-law, Diana, right? Who is, who is mounting a strong fight against glioblastoma. We want to remember those, who, the children and the adults who were murdered yesterday um, at, the, at the school in Nashville. And these things are ever-present reminders, as if we need them, ever-present reminders that this is a broken world. It's a broken world. There's just no two ways about it. It's a broken world. And so we pray, really, every part of our prayer, even if we don't say it, carries, carries the sense of, in the Aramaic, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because when Jesus returns, this world will be put right. What is broken will be put right. And we won't be praying about people with cancer or children being gunned down in their classrooms. And if you ever needed the reminders of how much we need a savior and a rescuer, well, yesterday was another stark one. So with that said, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we come together on this Tuesday. We appreciate this opportunity to do this, to take and carve some time out of our week, to come here and just immerse ourselves in Scripture. It doesn't matter so much where in Scripture we are, but just to spend this time in your Word, coming to better understand who you are, coming to know you better, so that we can know ourselves better and, and, and really grasp your work in this world and be bolstered in our confidence about your work in this world. Um, sometimes that confidence can be battered about by what happens around us, but 
we come here and we are reminded of the truth of the gospel and we are reminded of the truth that indeed you love us and you are our savior and rescuer and that salvation can be found nowhere else. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, friends, so we are in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now, there's a this is part of a very long story. Okay, and so last week we got enough done in chapter 14 to um, go through the battle that's fought between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Philistines are the enemies to the, which direction? West, over by the Mediterranean. The Philistines are sea people, S-E-A. <laughs> They're sea people, S-E-A. The, the Israelites are not. The Philistines probably came down from the Aegean Sea and settled on the coastline there, um, coastal lands of Israel. And they are the enemies the, to the west. And it was a battle in which Saul leading the Israelite armies were, was, were successful, okay? And we got all that done last week. Big battle, I brought a map. Let me see if I can show, you remember this map? What, this map, there we go. Doesn't matter so much all the places, especially today. Today is sort of an ancillary story, story embedded in, in the same, uh, in that same battle. So we're just gonna plunge in, okay? This is one of, this is a good. This is a good. This this is a good story. There, there, there's a lot of message here. You could preach. You could preach this a lot. Okay, so look. We're going to start in First Samuel 14, verse 24. Now, depending on the Bible that you're using, you know how the different publishers will have different section headings, right? So they're not all the same, obviously, because the section heading is not part of the text. The footnotes at the bottom, they're not part of the text. So in the NIV, it says, Jonathan eats honey. Like who? who, who? Winnie the Pooh, didn't he eat a lot of honey? Yes, Winnie the Pooh. Yes, yes. In my NRSV, um, it is Saul makes a rash oath. That gets closer to the heart of the story. But anyway, we'll plunge in. Verse 24, now the Israelites were in distress that day. This is the day of their victorious battle. Because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, quote, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Now, first of all, you know, I spent time in the military. I didn't, I didn't slog around with the rifle on my back, but I've spent enough time to know that that's really stupid. <laughs> I mean, really, you, you tell your troops going into, but you can't eat anything. I don't care how famished you are. I don't care how weak you are. You can't eat anything. Get your hands out of your backpacks. Why would he make this oath? What is he doing? Just what? Is he just demonstrating that he has the power now that he is king to... to um, to enforce such an oath. But in any event, the troops are so scared of him that they, okay, he's king, we're not supposed to eat, okay. And they did win the battle. 
So we have to, we have to acknowledge that. Verse 25, the entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. Right? So there's some beehive above in a tree that has, and honey is spilled out onto the ground. Now, I will tell you something about the Engel family. Um, <coughs> the Engel family, you know, I, I, was, I was born a Hubley, but I was adopted by my stepfather, um, and his name was Engel, so my name became Engel. The Engel family was a family of beekeepers over there in East Texas. How, how many of you remember the Sioux Bee, where you'd have the little squeeze that would be like an Indian princess, you know? Couldn't do that now, I'm sure. So, so Sioux Bee, that, which was like a farmer's co-op for honey as opposed to wheat or something else, that was created in my, in Grandmother Engel's living room over there in East Texas. Yeah, so they, they were commercial, they were commercial bee farmers, commercial beekeepers running bees back and forth between Texas and the Dakotas to get them worked and they, you know, the whole thing. So I know something about, about honey. I worked the bees some as a kid. Not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Because you got stung a lot. There's just, you know, nowadays I see beekeepers and they're all covered. You ever see them now? They're all covered in like this, this, this astronaut outfit. You know, with this big white suit and these big gloves and this big hat. That's not what we did. We would go work the bees and Francis would throw a helmet on with the mesh thing around us and that was it. He just said, oh, you can't work the bees if you got gloves on. You got to stay barehanded. Okay, <laughs> didn't work out well all the time, but there we go, enough, enough beekeeping. All right, one more beekeeping thing. I, when we go to Israel, our favorite guide, let me rephrase that, the guide we are closest to personally is Lior Rothenberg, Lior, and Lior is an amateur beekeeper. And he always sends us home with a, with a jar of his honey. We went, Lior invited us up to his house um, in the Golan Heights the last time we were there to spend, have dinner with his family. It was, it was quite something. He's got four, little, four kids and it was busy and wonderful, just, just wonderful. And, and the daughter came out with this jar of honey and proudly presented it to us. It was very, very, very nice. So. The honey is on the ground when they went, verse 26, when they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. You know, it looked good to them. They haven't been able to eat anything. Honey's a quick starter for you. If you ever really, ever want a little boost to energy, you know, get some honey, put some honey on a spoon, eat, put some honey on toast. So, but verse 27, but Jonathan, now who is Jonathan? Saul's son. He is Saul's eldest son. He is the successor to the throne because that's how it worked. He's the successor to the throne. But Jonathan had not heard that his father, Saul, had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff, the stick that was in his hand, 
and dipped it into the honeycomb, just stuck it right in there. They don't tell us anything about what the bees are doing this whole time. <laughs> and he raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. What a wonderful way to express it, right? Just, you know, this, this is why I like the book of Samuel so much. It's just, it's just such good writing. Um, his eyes brightened because he's got that honey he hasn't been able to eat anything. He's filled with energy. It's been a big, tough battle all day long. And his eyes are brightened. <sighs> you, can just, you, can just, you, can, you can picture it. You can feel it yourself. You know, you, you're down. You're tired. and <sighs> Okay. Feeling a lot better. And his eyes are brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. And that is why the men are faint. Faint. This is your own army, and you've reduced them to faintness. Is faintness a word? <laughs> I don't know. So Jonathan says, My father has made trouble for the country. What do you think? You don't want your, uh, the men from the tribes and the army, you know, two, two levels come immediately to mind, mind to me. You don't want them faint, right? They're, they're supposed to be chasing down the Philistines, not, not just kind of sitting there hungry. But secondly, how does it make Saul look when, when people issue arbitrary, because it's arbitrary. This isn't anything God said. It doesn't make any sense that I know of. There's no reason behind it that I know of. Um, it makes the king look what? Inept, foolish, right? Rash. It, 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 it's not the thing that engenders confidence in the king for him to behave this way. What do you mean we can't eat anything? We're going into battle. Anyway, so he says, My father has made trouble for the country. This is verse 29. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted just a little of this honey? How much better would it have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies? Okay, so that, now, now, these armies, you know, you've heard talk about armies traveling on their stomach, right? I mean, armies have to get fed. So they don't have trains bringing loads of food to them and trucks and all the rest of it that we have now. They either carry it, forage for it, or take it. In this case, he's talking about food that they could have taken from the Philistines, right? They're the victors. The plunder in the ancient world Plunder was the generally accepted, expected reward for conquering armies. It was part of the deal. If you were the conquering army and you won, you got, you got to plunder. The way it was. I've always had a problem. What? I've always had a problem in the Bible when it says 75,000 or 200,000. And the first thing I always think about is, 
Well, the num we've talked about the numbers. They're, the m numbers are probably yeah, some honoring hyperbole, but still, it's why you make a very good point. Actually, the armies of the world were much smaller than we tend to think of it until the Industrial Revolution. What the Industrial Revolution created in the 19th century was that it enabled very large armies. And that reached its culmination in the carnage of the First World War, in which hundreds of thousands, millions of men were chewed up in that war, and those armies could not have been as big because they didn't, until the Industrial Revolution and telegraph and railroads, you had no way to actually sustain that big an army. Yes? Okay, so I'm being asked to guesstimate the population of Palestine, Israel, Canaan, whatever you want to call it, back then. A few hundred thousand, maybe? Yeah. Not any more than that. So everybody, like he was saying, that's unheard of. An army that big when it's your Well, and it's just how do you sustain it? Everybody, if you go through ancient writings, whether the Greek writings or the Egyptian writings, they would honor their kings and themselves with these big army numbers. But you can't, you, you can't really sustain them. As I said, even at the time of Jesus, when the Roman Empire was approaching the pinnacle of its strength, it's still a century away or so, about 100 AD, it's at the pinnacle of its reach and strength, the Roman legions only numbered 300,000 in, 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 in an empire reaching from Britain across the Mediterranean all the way over to the Tigris-Euphrates River. 300,000. When they committed a quarter of the legions to putting down the Jewish rebellion in the 60s AD, that would mean the actual number of fighters, fighters we're talking about here, warriors, that they could commit to that, because they committed about a quarter of their legions, was about 50,000 fighters. And, that's, and that is a millennium, more than a millennium past where we are now. Here's another tidbit. Of, populations are very difficult in the ancient world to, to, to guesstimate. Rome was the largest city of its day with the population estimated to be a million people enormous in the context of the ancient world. There would not be a city as large, this is in the West, I don't know about China, but in the West there would not be a city as large again until London of the 17th century. So population, what would happen to populations? Plagues had come through and kill a third of the people or a quarter of the people. You know, there'd be famines and all kinds of things would suppress ancient populations. Right now, we live a long time. And as a consequence, what ha what's happening to populations now? They're just growing, growing, growing. Everybody's population is, you know, growing, growing, growing. And if you're, if, if you're a developed country, sure, you're not replacing yourself anymore, which we won't get into here, but, but the old ways of getting rid of people, they're not, they're not here so much anymore. Now it's just your bodies wear out. That's pretty much how it happens. 
because we can feed we can feed everybody on the planet today. We don't necessarily all the time, but that's for other reasons. But we could. We have the means. We being humanity. Okay, enough. Yes. I was going to say, of the million of Rome, how many were slaves? Ten percent, fifty percent, twenty percent. Maybe. Um, what percentage of Rome was slaves? Maybe 20% of the empire was slaves? Maybe more than that, that might be low. I haven't refreshed my memory about that number in a while, but it, there were a lot. It, and it wasn't, it wasn't, there were many ways to end up being a slave and many ways to get out. It's, and it was, in, it was a, a practice in, across all ancient cultures, in the West, in China, in Africa, um, and the analogy to it is not the horror of African-American slavery. The closest slaves in the Roman Empire to African-American slavery in America were the slaves who worked agriculturally. But many slaves were urban, many slaves were teachers, many people went into slavery, they came out of slavery. Um, most households of means had one or two slaves. Who did who did the grunt work in the house? Mike. William Barclay in his commentaries estimates three million slaves. Well, see, three million slaves would only be five percent of the empire because the Roman Empire had sixty million people in it. So I think that's low, myself. That, that was his estimate. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's probably low. There were a lot of slaves. Um, Five to ten million. Ten million would be one, one, one out of every six people. Yeah. So, you know, and again, you can find scholars who will offer up all kinds of numbers yeah. because we, they just didn't have, we don't, it's hard to estimate these ancient populations. Okay, one, um, one more over here. Doug? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, the Philistines lived next to the coast. The Palestinians of today were the people who lived on that whole land right there from, a, from 140 AD until the 20th century. Okay? They were, they're just the native people, really. To, to those who live there. The Palestinian, it's why I always say, you know, people will say, well, what did Jesus look like? And my answer is, if you want to get an idea what Jesus looked like, don't go to the streets of Tel Aviv because the Jewish people have a lot of European history, right? Where they, because Jews were not on the land for 2,000 years. So where you should go is to the West Bank and your typical Palestinian is going to look more like Jesus than your typical Israeli is going to look like Jesus. That's, you know, the Semitic, um, yeah, so anyway. And there, people don't agree, uh, scholars don't agree about how much Palestine and Palestinian is tied as a word to Philistine. They, you know, I kind of, you know, it's easy to see the connection I kind of do, but they say be careful because maybe not. So, I don't know. Okay, back to the honey. <laughs> so, 
Jonathan says, how much better, what, verse 30, how much better would it have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from, from their enemies? Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? Okay? That's the ancient world. You know, it's not the way we, we do war now. Right? We try not to. It seems to be the way the Russians do it now in the 21st century. But generally we try to... Well, I can't really even say that, you know. I guess maybe the 21st century we have, we try to minimize civilian casualties, but that certainly wasn't true before the 21st century. Okay, but that's, you know, Jonathan's point is, wow, this was a silly thing for dad to order. Verse 31, well, that day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash, I love that, I just love the name Michmash. From Michmash to Aijalon, they were exhausted. Of course they were. They hadn't eaten anything. I can't go without breakfast. <laughs> they pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they perched them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against Yahweh by eating meat that has blood in it. Okay, so two things have gone off the track here. One, they're disobeying Saul, who had made this oath. Second thing is, the Jews were not to eat meat that still had the blood in it. It was to be cooked away. Any ideas about why that is? <laughs> why? Why were they prohibited in the law of Moses from eating meat that was still bloody? Because blood is life. Blood is life. They knew as well as we knew. If you leaked out all your blood, you would be what? Dead. Dead. Blood is life. There, and here's, here's the funny part. I, oh, my brain. Okay, so <laughs> it makes connections sometimes that disturb me. So it, in the book Dracula by Bram Stoker, the doctor in there is going, the blood is life. <laughs> That's it. It's true. It's, it's even repeated in the movie with, oh, what's his name? So, two, things, two ways the men have gone wrong. I'm in a rare mood today. Okay. Yeah. So, they go to Saul. They say, look, the men, look what they're doing. So Saul says, you have broken faith. Now, the instruction about, okay, let me stop. The instruction about not eating blood, meat with blood in it, is from God. The other instruction about not eating, that's only from Saul. Saul says, you have broken faith, roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against Yahweh by eating meat with blood still in it. Okay, so, so that's, that's a pretty good moment for Saul as far as it's gone. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to Yahweh. It was the first time he had done this. Not so sure about that piece. Well, who's missing from this piece? A, pr a priest. A priest is missing from this piece. Saul is taking that upon himself. 
So he's got a he's he's got a good idea, but he in his Saul-like way, he's not being he's not being careful enough. Not being careful enough. So verse 36, Saul said, Let's go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them until dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. So they are going to put an end to the Philistine problem. And then the, pe the men replied, do whatever seems best to you. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So if I go back to 36, I missed this when I was preparing for today. So I'm willing to infer from this that a priest is there with Saul when he builds that altar. Okay? Given what it says in verse 36 at the end. So, okay. That, that's good. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So, this is this inquiring of God about what does God want me to do. Okay, so every, a lot of people come to me and said, how, how do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know what God wants me to do? Well, they have an answer for a way to do that. Um, it isn't the way we typically do it, but they have, they have an answer. So Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out <clears throat> what sin has been committed that, that been committed today. Um, let me back up, I'm sorry. Verse 37, So Saul asked God, Shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. They do have a way they're going to use in a little bit in order to, to get an answer. But God isn't answering Saul. Whatever that would be, God is not answering Saul that day. Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as Yahweh who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Why don't they say a word? Because they know. And Jonathan's a hero. Go back to the beginning of the battle. Remember when, when Jonathan went out to the Philistine outpost with his armor bearer? And they stood, you know, hey, hey, guys, and, you know, ended up attacking this little outpost and killing like 20 Philistines and by themselves. And so Jonathan is seen well. He's seen as a, as a hero by, by the troops. And so they don't say anything. They didn't want to rat on him. They didn't want to rat on him. They don't say a word. So Saul then said to all the Israelites, you stand over there. And Jonathan, my son, will stand over, and I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. And they say, do what seems best. Verse 41, then Saul prayed to Yahweh, the God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. 
So the Urumum and the Thummim are these two stones that are, you know, it's part of the whole priestly deal. It's given in the Law of Moses. And they are, it's essentially like throwing dice. Pulling marbles out of a bowl. Um, you put two marbles in a bowl, one blue, one green, and you pull out and did, which one did you get? Um, it's like um, drawing lots. That's what it is, in the sense that there's two of them. And because there's two of them, you'll see that you can, you can do that to get an answer. Jonathan and Saul, let me make sure I'm at the right place. I'm having trouble finding my place back in this. Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot, and the men were cleared. So you get all the men over here, Saul and Jonathan, which, you know, stone comes out, which is it? Well, it's these guys win, Saul and Jonathan lose. Saul said, cast the lot between me and, my jo my, me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. So it's on Jonathan, which is actually true. And this is why the Israelites did it this way, because it was a way to see God's answer. Because even for them, if they sit there and they address God in a loud voice, they don't necessarily hear God speaking in their ear. So they would have this mechanism. This drawing of lots is what it is, right? And you may think, well, that's just this really, really Old Testament thing. But no, it's even found in the New Testament. That's how they replace Judas Iscariot. They draw lots, and lots comes up to this man named Matthias. And he is a replacement for Judas and the Twelve, just done by lots, because they figure God's going to make the dice come up the way God wants them to come up, or the lots, or whatever random thing it is, is that you are doing. I call it random. They would not call it random. They would call it God. Now, we don't do this anymore, do we? Anybody been anywhere where they, they made decisions this way in a church? Not recently. At one time? Not read, but at one time in the past, no, not that. I mean, I've been around churches a lot. Not, not that I'm aware. We don't do it, which illustrates what. Now, what does it illustrate? These are ancient people, and for them, God basically chooses everything that happens in life. Everything. There are no there's no weather. There are weather systems, but they don't know about low-pressure systems that are moving in and dropping the barometric pressure, and so it's going to rain, and yada, 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 all that kind of stuff. For them, for the ancients in general, God or the gods, were the first cause of everything. It's, they, God would be the first cause of chair moving. Even in like the 17th century, there was a philosopher in the West who said, you know, if you think of a billiard table, it's God who is moving the balls around the billiard table. God is the most 
people came to want, came to see, I think rightfully, as we knew more and more about God's creation, that there are many causes that God has built into his creation. There are weather systems. God doesn't have to decide if it's going to rain or be sunny tomorrow. There are weather systems. That's what God has built into this, into this wonderful creation. So consequently, I think Christians, Jews as far as I know, don't engage in a practice like that. Don't do it even though the, uh, it's, it's in the first chapter of Acts because we have, we, we have a deeper understanding of how God's world works. Yes. It was Saul that forbid it. So Saul is looking for a scapegoat. So he said, Lord. So he's asking the Lord for instruction. And in my eyes, God's saying, you're on your own. Well, except that they go through the lot. Yeah. And who does it land on? Yeah, they spin the wheel. Who's it land on? Who's, and who ate the honey? Jonathan. Jonathan. Now, the, the, Saul's mistake is saying, who sinned against God? Because they didn't sin against God. He didn't sin against God. This was not any, anything God told Jonathan not to do. Right? God didn't even tell Saul to make this. As the NRSV puts it, it's heading this rash oath. It's a rash oath. Just sort of thrown out there. You're not even sure why. And now his beloved eldest son is caught up in his rash oath. He's already said, the one who ate the honey, the one who has sinned, the one who has disobeyed, I don't care what word you put around it, they are to die. His son. With that said, turn to Judges book chapter 11. We're going to connect a dot. Isn't, isn't the sin, though, that they ate the meat? They ate the meat and with the blood in it. They are kind of mixed up together here. Okay. There is sin in the meat, but... That isn't where the story's pointing us, right? That story is pointing us back to Jonathan because everybody can see who ate the meat. You wouldn't have to draw lots to determine who ate the meat. It's been there, right? A whole bunch of people did that. But you're right, Patty, in that these two <laughs> stories are woven together and they make it more complicated, right? And perhaps these two stories separately told, came together, and, and an ed editor put them together, and it make, and it's just a wee bit confusing. How, how about that? That's, That's possible, right? Sure? Mercy, thank you. Mercy me. Yes. Okay. Okay, so let, let's go back to 39 and just read through it. Right. 
Verse 39, Saul says that surely is the Lord who rescues Israel lives even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. All right, that's starting too late. Go back to 37. Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Why did God not answer him that day? Because somebody had sinned. Somebody had done something wrong. So John, that's what Saul's got to infer. Saul then says, well, come here. We're going to find out what sin has been committed today. He doesn't know that the honey's been eaten. He just knows something's wrong. How does he know something's wrong? Because God's not answering him. That's just... Yes. Let's go back to 24. 24. Oh, my gosh. That's what he says. And I think this has context to it. It says, anyone who eats anything before evening, when I have taken revenge on my enemies, is doomed. So the whole thing is coming from him. Where did he get that? Where did he come from? How did he Just out of his brain. Exactly. He didn't get it from God. Don't. The, the exactly. bit about the food exactly. is pure rashness. It's and, and a poor military commander who would order such a thing. Am I right? right. Am I right, Don Crawford? You, you're my military consultant. I like that, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. See? Okay. Okay, look at verse 31, just, just to show you how these are probably two things that are being woven together. That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines, they were exhausted and they fell on the food and they ate it, and that's when they eat the blood. Then the story shifts back to um, to Saul. In verse 36, because Saul says, ask God, do we go down and pursue the Philistines? And he does get an answer. And um, uh, he's gone to the priest. He does get an answer. And um, so he thinks that somebody must have done something wrong. And he, he, he equates it to a sin. Okay? That's how he sees it. And that's when he draw the, then they draw the lots, and the lot ends up falling correctly on Jonathan. And it falls on Jonathan. Why? Because he is the one who ate the honey. He, right, I mean, they draw the lots and roll the dice, and it all comes up Jonathan. They spin the wheel, it comes up Jonathan. Cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son, and then Jonathan was taken, verse 42, by the lots. Then Saul said to Jonathan, and this is, this, this is really the key to the story, the, because there's so much that's coming about the relationship between Saul and Jonathan. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Okay? Because that was what his father had commanded. So with that, go to Judges 11. 
Judges chapter 11. Um, this is chapter 11 is about one of the judges of Israel. This is before the time of Saul and all this stuff. And this judge is named um, Jephthah. Look at verse 29. Okay, so Jephthah is leading the Israelites in a battle against the Ammonites, not the Philistines, the Ammonites, who were on the eastern side. Okay, 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be Yahweh's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and Yahweh gave them into his hands, and he devastated 20 towns from Aurora to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Now, verse 34. This is where rash oaths lead. When Jephthah returned to the ho his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels and bells? She was an only child, except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried out, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to Yahweh that I cannot break. And she says, My father, you have given your word to Yahweh. Do to me just as you promised, now that Yahweh has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. And Jephthah says, you may go. And he let her go for two months. And she and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father. And this is all it says. And he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. So that is Jephthah's story. That is Jephthah's famous vow that he makes rashly. Do you think God wanted him to keep that vow? No. Be careful what you wish for. Well, I certainly don't think God wanted him to keep that vow. People do stupid things. They say, do you think we ever say stupid things to God? Do you, ever, do you think we ever make stupid promises to God? Right? Of course we do. Of course we do. And he does. And he should have, he, he should have known God well enough to know that the keeping of the vow at the expense of his daughter's life would only make God weep. Would not please God. Goodness.
but it's a famous story because he makes this rash, rash oath. And then there are, there are those who say he doesn't really keep it, but I think it's clear that he does, he does keep it. And, and the, the young woman dies, and it's a terrible story in that way. It's, it's basically, you know, sort of a story of human sacrifice. That's not who God is. It's how the pagans were around them, but that's not, that's not what God wants. What does God want? What does God want? Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God doesn't want rivers of oil, doesn't want your firstborn, doesn't want any of that stuff. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Everything other than that is leading to the truth revealed fully in Christ, who is the full revelation of God. And, and Jephthah's story is one of, of don't take rash oaths. And in Saul's case, it is don't make rash commands. Now, he didn't, Saul did not make an oath to God. He just issued this stupid command. And being king, he, you know, in their, in their world, kings expected to be obeyed. Okay, so now there's this big problem. Let me get back to where we were. Um, thank you, Patty, 44. So in verse 43, Jonathan said to him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my stick, and now I must die. And Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you don't die, Jonathan. This is what I said, and I'm not going back on it. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as Yahweh lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. And Saul backs down. He does the right thing. He does back down, but he only painted himself in a corner by making that stupid command. That's why in the NRSV, the section is called Saul's Rash Oath. Because they, you know, rash promise, rash command. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. The army says, nope, you might be king, but you're not doing this. So for the men of Israel, that's, that's a pretty good moment, as well as being a good moment for Jonathan. Right? Yeah, yeah. Not a good moment for Saul. Right? Other than that, his son is going to live. But as king, it's not, it's not a great moment. Verse 46. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land to the west. Well, okay. Anything else about that story the, that I can mess up? Yes.
Okay, so the point is being made about God's will. And was it God's will that Jephthah's daughter died? Isn't God's will that Jonathan die? How do we, let's take a moment and talk about how we think about God's will. A lot of people grow up in churches or denominations where God's will is the expression of all the steps that you're supposed to take in life. Is it God's will that I should take this job? Is it God's will that I should go to this school? Is it God's will that I should marry this woman? Very specific, as if God, as if God has everyone's life planned out like flagstone steps across the yard. And you're trying to find them. I'm here, which one is it? Am I going to go that direction? Or? That is not, that is not a good understanding of God's will. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will know what the will of God is. What is good, what is pleasing to God, what is whole and mature. God's will is a, it's a moral will. It is love God and love neighbor. Be compassionate, be kind, be patient, the fruit of the Spirit. It is a moral will. Think of the things above, the things of, uh, that are excellent and true, Paul writes. It's, it's a moral will. It's how we, can, how we live our lives in such a way that we really embody and practice the love of God and love of neighbor. God does not care whether you take the job at EDS or Frito-Lay. Now, God might care whether you work for a porno shop or right, Barnes and Noble, but, but that's a moral decision, right? But between EDS and Frito-Lay, I don't know. Why would God care? God, God would care how you, how you conducted yourself in the workplace. And could people see that you're a Christian in the workplace? What does it mean to love others? Those are the right questions to ask. So you are absolutely on the right track. Couldn't be God's will that Jephthah's daughter die because, because dad made this silly oath. Rash, silly. Hmm. But we do it all the time, don't we? And we're, we're <coughs> why, don't we, why don't we walk that sort of stuff back? We don't, uh, why don't, have you as a parent ever like made an empty threat <laughs> to your kids? No. No. Right? It's sometimes parents make threats they shouldn't make and they don't want to walk them back out of pride. Yeah. Pride. <coughs> yeah, that's where guilt should control your very being. I remember when my son was nine years old and had a remote. Yeah? Yes. Well, I got so mad I took it away from him. And 23 years later, I carried that guilt and I bought him another room and drove car and tried to make up for a So wait, let me get this right. So when your son was nine years old, he wrecked his remote control car out in the street, and you were so mad that he wrecked the car. When you were the one who gave it to a nine-year-old, okay, that you took it away and you carried that guilt with you. 23 years, and so when your son was 32, you bought him a remote-controlled car when he's going, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> yeah, you know, so, you know, you've just, 
it, it's why a lot of times when you come to the Bible, you, you, you have to step back, right? And just, okay, what's happening in this story? Every story in the Bible is not written to give you a moral lesson, right? That's Aesop's fables. A lot of the Bible is just telling you what happened. It's not a moral lesson. It's just telling you what happened. The, the people that you meet in the Bible, most of them are not heroic. I mean, Abraham's family is a mess, right? They're just, read the stories. Read the story of Jacob. Jacob is the father of 12 tribes of Israel, right? He's a, he and his mother conspired, conspired to cheat dad. Not heroic. There's nothing heroic in it. But it's true. It's real. It's what we do. There we go. Okay. So, anything else? Yes. It, well, it could be because they, they could have drawn the stones over the eating of the blood, right? So a picture, picture forget the stones, a picture as, as, a, as a coin flip before the Super Bowl. Heads or tails, you know? And you could have set it up to where the heads or tails are all about who's eating the blood. But everybody knows who's eating the blood. I mean, it's all happened right there. Right? It's like they come and they tell Saul, oh man, we've eaten all this stuff. He says, oh my gosh, well bring it over. We're going to build a quick altar and cook it all. So to cook away the blood. The question is, why doesn't God answer him, Saul? And he's obviously from the text, he sees it because somebody has done something. Another point about the ancient world, and it is true of the Hebrews, the Israelites, as it was of the Greeks and the Romans, generally, if something bad happens to you, the God sent you that as well. If something good happens to you, the God sent that as well. So, so his, he, he's asked, do we pursue the Philistines? He asks God. He doesn't get an answer. He figures God is silent because God has been sinned against. Well, who did this? What is? He doesn't even know what the sin is. He just assumes somebody has sinned against God. And so then they flip the coin. And it comes, is it come up? Okay, heads, Jonathan and Saul. Tails, the men. It comes up heads. Heads, Jonathan, tails, Saul. Wait. Heads, Saul, tails, Jonathan, and it comes up tails. That's all that's really happening. The the fascinating part is they ascribe all of that to God's direct action in making those choices. So, if it would have come up that it was not Jonathan and Saul, and it was the men, which are his entire army, would he think if it roll of the stones or whatever, he would have killed his entire army? Well, that was why but it's such a stupid oath, right? Yeah. Right? It it's revealed to be such a stupid oath because 
It really encompasses only one ma young man, Jonathan, and the men won't even let him do it. I'm sure there's two things that are going on when the men, the troops say, no, 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 no. One is, it was stupid, stupid, stupid to make that command. Secondly, this is Jonathan. He's the hero of the day. What are you talking about? Let's not be crazy here. Okay, one more. Oh, well, you see, you could always take it back, couldn't you? Yeah. Right? He could, he could say, but see, why doesn't he want to do that? <laughs> Pride. Yeah. You know, what is, what is the root of all sin? Pride. Augustine, uh, the root of sin is pride. Pride, pride is the taproot that feeds all of the sins and vices. Okay, now, verse 47. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab to the south. Let me see if I have the slide that would have a few names on here. There we go. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. All but Zobah is on here. Because they play the, um, uh, the Ammonites... The Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, they all play fairly prominent roles in different parts of the Bible. In, in this portion, the main focus is on the Philistines. He fought wherever he turned, this is Saul, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites. Now these are the Amalekites. They are an ancient enemy of Israel. They are the ones who pounced on the Egyptians, not the Egyptians, Scott. They are the ones who pounced on the Israelites when they fled across the Red Sea. They flee across the Red Sea. They're making their way um, toward, the toward Mount Sinai and the Amalekites who roam around the Sinai Peninsula fall on them and they make war and because of God the Israelites win. But the Amalekites had a terrible reputation with Israel. They're the ancient enemies. They um, were seen as the kind of fighters who would fall on the back, uh, at, on the rear of the army and, and all the people following it. They were not fighting fair, I guess, picking on the weakest rather than fighting in a kind of like a straight-up fight. Um, so they had a, they, they were sort of a symbol in a way of, the old expression was man's inhumanity to man. That's kind of the way, that's who the Amalekites became, you know, for the Israelites. <laughs> now, a little bit about Saul's family, and if you have a pencil, and you're willing to mark your Bible in some way, this is a good place to do it because I'm going to point out a few names here that you need to remember because we're going to run into them time and time and time again. Now Saul's sons were Jonathan, important in the story. Ishvi and Malkishua, no. The name of his older daughter was Mirab. Saul's oldest daughter, older daughter was Mirab. Eh. 
and that of the younger was Michael. Michael's important in the story. Michael becomes David's first wife. Yes, that's who Michael is. She becomes David's first wife. His wife's name, Saul's wife's name, was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimaaz. Not very important. The name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner. Big important name. Abner has a big role to play going forward in the stories of Saul and then the stories of Saul and David and yep and notice what he is he is the commander of Saul's army that which means he's a, the king's right-hand guy he's the commander of Saul's army Abner son of Ner and Ner was Saul's uncle we're not going to co come across Ner too much Saul's father Kish and Abner's father Ner were sons of Abiel. Now what does that tell you about Saul and Abner? They're cousins, rather direct cousins. Are they first cousins? Patty's my consultant on family trees. So yeah, first cousins. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. So. You know, he's always on the lookout for somebody he thought would make a good fighter. David did the same thing. David had an inner circle of about 30 fighting men who were, who were, who were David's closest. Okay? So, I think what we need to do is stop there because we are coming up to another story of Saul's rejection by God. Rejection is king. Saul's going to make another mistake. He's going to sin against God because he knows better. Why does he think he knows better? He's king. He's, you got it. He's king. Kings are takers and the rest of it. So, let's see. Thank you for helping me with the two threads in that story. It, Sometimes, you know, these ancient writings, are there, they, they can be a bit of a puzzlement to work through, but the focus is on Saul's rash oath, his rash command, and the men's rejection of it in the end. They reject it, and they save Jonathan. They rescue Jonathan, who is prepared to die, because that is what his father ordered. Okay? So anybody have anything else you would like to add? Mike. Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, regarding the question about the Palestinians and who they were and where they came from, there was no such thing as a people or population known as the Palestinians until 1947 when the British left the protectorate, Israel was created, <coughs> and at that point in time they began to call the people that had lived there Palestinians. <coughs> Otherwise, before then, they'd be just been known as Arabs. But that's where the Palestinians came from. Well, I, I think that's probably... That's my understanding. Not so much mine. Okay. There had been people on the land. The question is, who was on the land when the Romans erased the Jews from the land? Right? 
So there, there weren't Arabs because Arab, there wasn't there. They were just natives. Okay, right. so, so I, 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 I want to say about about that, that because I get lots of questions. The understanding of what happened in Zionism, and after the end of the First World War, and the drawing of boundaries, and the setting up of the State of Israel after the end of the Second World War, and the rest of it, many many mistakes were made in all of that, and. That part of the world is living with those mistakes. All of that has almost nothing to do with your Bible. Your Bible is not helpful in that. They're separated by almost 2,000 years. So, so um, you know, the people who were on the land when the state of Israel was set up, some, many of them did leave, and some of them stayed. And Jews were kicked out of surrounding Arab countries like Egypt and Jordan and so forth. And it's all really a, a terrible story, and I am a big defender of Israel. My only point as a Bible teacher is, is don't try to make those connections between what we have here and the geopolitics of, of the Mideast today. Um, is the Israelis, will, their claim to the land is one that goes like all the way back to Moses. That's what they mean. You know, God said to Abraham, I'll give you a land, descendants, and rest. So yes, God gave us this land. That's, that's, that's their claim. But there are 4,000 years between the giving of that claim and today. And so um, just, that, I guess that's it. Okay, so, anything else? Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come here to Scripture. The stories are sometimes really pretty crystal clear. Sometimes they get wrapped in with each other. Here today we learned about Saul's rash, rash, command. We heard about Jephthah's rash oath. We pray that you will always help us to focus on who you really are and what you really want from us, which isn't all kinds of vows and oaths. Jesus said, don't take an oath. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Um, so that we can focus on what you desire from us and for us, which is simply that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and that we would love others as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.